calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself, What would kids do? Then pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com. Welcome. You are listening to the Jussie podcast on the Revolver Podcast Network. My name is Thomas Kelly, and this is episode six, the sentencing of Jussie Smollett. Uh, I think you want to hear some of this. And we're honored to have a couple of guests with us to kind of go over uh, selected uh, excerpts from the sentencing hearing which was extraordinarily long. A sentencing hearing in Chicago usually lasts half hour, maybe 45 minutes. This went on, I believe, for close to six hours. And there are all kinds of fireworks. And we'll stop it on occasion and have uh, comments from our guests, including our lead investigative reporter throughout the Jussie podcast, and that would be uh, Shelly Stanley in Maine. One of the few people in Maine that we know. Shelly, welcome. Thanks, Tom. Good to have you here. And we also have from Georgia, Kimberly Hill, a longtime radio producer, host, radio journalist. Kimberly, welcome. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. And, okay, let's get right into it. Uh, We're going to start off with an excerpt from Special Prosecutor Dan Webb, who we featured on this podcast. I think it was uh, in the last two episodes. The first was Uninterrupted, followed by Episode 5, which included some uh, analysis and refutation of some of the comments of Dan Webb, mainly by our investigative reporter, Shelley Stanley, who is back with us today. Uh, And here is Dan Webb launching into his uh, very harsh recommendation for the sentence for Justice Smollett. Ms. Webb, I will hear from the Office of Special Prosecutor, arguments and aggravation. Uh, Thank you, Your Honor. As Your Honor knows, this is the sentencing phase of the case where uh, we, from the Special Prosecutor's Office, get a chance to kind of sit back and reflect with the court for a bit and talk about whether, whether there are aggravating special circumstances in this case that we want to call to your honor's attention so you can consider or focus on them if you choose to in rendering sentence in this case. There are three. There's three I want to talk about. Number one, I do want to talk about the underlying serious criminal misconduct that Mr. Smollett engaged in and that he was convicted of by a jury after they heard all the evidence and they, the jury, made the decision. 
that he was guilty of five felony offenses. I want to talk about that. We've heard a lot about that uh, in, in this sentencing hearing, a lot of talk about how it's kind of a low-level thing, not a big deal. I want to talk about it. Number two, another aggravating circumstance that I think is a big issue is that during this trial, Mr. Smollett made the choice, sitting here in front of a jury, listening to evidence, he decided to beat the case and go in front of a jury and take an oath to tell the truth and decide to lie to them and lie to them for several hours. It was an effort to obstruct justice in this courtroom, to try to convince a jury to uh, ignore evidence and, and accept his lies, and they didn't do it. They rejected it all, and after, what, two or three hours of deliberation, found him guilty of five counts. So I want to talk about that. The third is the issue of contrition. As far as I know, as I stand before your honor, in the three years that this case has been pending, three years, Mr. Smollett has never made any statement publicly or in a courtroom or in a court pleading to ever accept any acknowledgement that he's responsible for what happened here, to admit that he in fact engaged in wrongdoing, to apologize for making mistakes. None of that has happened. Not a single act of contrition has happened so far in this case, and I at least want to talk about that as a third factor. Hey, I noted in the very beginning, Dan Webb emphasized what a serious crime this was. I have to say that it kind of flies in the face of the facts. Even though the judge, the special prosecutor, and others continually have tried to present this as a very, very serious crime, everyone knows it's a fourth-degree disorderly conduct charge. There are five counts, but they're basically all the same count. It's telling the same lie to different police officers or in different reports. It's inescapable, isn't it, that it's not a very serious crime. Shelley, can you address that with the facts about the seriousness, the level of seriousness of this crime? Yeah, I agree with you that it's not a serious crime. I mean, I think the reason that he is trying to emphasize how he thinks that it's a serious crime is to be able to ask for more time and a harsher punishment. Right. Now, Shelley, you know more than most of us about sentencing guidelines for disorderly conduct. Can you tell us what a typical sentence would be in a case like this? I don't know more. I'm not a criminal expert. They did talk about it at the trial quite a bit, and they said it's usually probation, um, very rarely incarceration for a fourth degree disorderly conduct. We've done some research ourselves. We can't find yeah. a single case in Chicago uh, where person convicted of disorderly conduct and nothing else was sentenced to any jail time at all. We can't find one. I might mention we did find one case of comparable interest, and that would be a lady who contacted the police to report an attempted murder. And it uh, turns out, long story short, it was all a hoax. Uh, the lady made it up because the guy broke up with her and called the police. Uh, nothing was factual in her report. Uh, she was charged with a disorderly conduct, lying to police. She was not sentenced. She, it was recommended that she go to a therapy. And she had to go to five 
sessions of therapy. And she completed those five sessions, and she was released without further punishment. Uh, Kimberly, would you have a comment on the comparability of those two cases? I don't, Tom, I don't know if there is one. I don't know if there is one. It's, a, it's, it's the silliest thing I've ever, all the facts are there, uh, laid out in front of you. What, I don't, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a circus. And he, you know, he didn't want to say anything and stand up and talk about it because he didn't want to be a part of the circus. I'm telling you, Tom, he still doesn't believe it's happening himself. The judge went a long way repeating himself. Just a bunch of time I, I can't, it, it really baffles me that this is taking place. It really does. Right. Now, Kimberly, let's get a little more background from you. When this all started, when I first talked to you a few weeks ago, I think you had just started to listen to some of the Jussie podcast. Before you listened to the podcast, uh, you had paid some attention to the trial. What were your thoughts? Initially, I'm thinking, what a dummy. Why would you do such a thing? And then uh, it, it completely just left my, my train of thought. I, I didn't think about it again. And then after you listened to a few of the podcasts, what happened? Uh, I started to listen closely to the details and learn that it's all it's a fluke. There's something to be covered up. There's something they're running from. There's something, you know, there are underlying issues here. It had nothing to do with Jesse. So you think there's a whole nother agenda? Oh, with... Tom, you got the, the kid who was shot 16 times, you know, at 16 years old just before this happened. And, and you find Jesse to be a bigger case to be involved in uh, and to talk about all day. But of course, you're referring to the Laquan Jackson case. Uh, Shelly, you might have a few comments on that. Is it true that Jussie's case has gotten more coverage than Laquan's case? Definitely in the beginning. I mean, they tried to cover up Laquan's case. All they did was go out and say that the police shot him once and it was justifiable that he was lunging at them with a knife. But because of the community out, outrage and because of independent investigative journalists, people filing FOIA requests, um, the truth eventually came out. And then there was a huge outpouring of outrage, people in the streets for over a year demanding justice for that case. So, um, you know, the media definitely put way more attention into this case. And I think the community put in a lot more attention into Laquan's case at that time mm -hmm. to get justice. You did spend some time doing uh, investigation and research on the Laquan case, did you not? Really in the context of this case, I did, because mm -hmm. they, they seemed to me to be very closely linked in time. And, and also with some, you know, the same people involved, like Detective Richard Hagen was sued in the Laquan McDonald case, and he was one of the main investigators in Jussie's case. Um, and many of much of the evidence that he found was very uh, suspicious evidence. Calling all 
cooperatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself. What would kids do? Dance to a giant organ played by ocean waves? Yep. Camp in floating tree houses hundreds of feet off the ground? Check. Jump in a big tub of mud on purpose? Call it rejuvenation. We don't care. Just pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. If you need help, ask your kids. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com. Shelley, do you agree with Kimberly's assessment that there's a, a totally separate agenda here for, I guess, the the police and City Hall and the courts in Chicago, that they have uh, separate goals than making sure uh, Jussie is put away where he can't hurt anybody? Definitely. I mean, I think that came out throughout the entire process. You know, you had the mayor the police superintendent coming out and saying that Jesse was trying to give Chicago a bad name. This was at the same point in time when the mayor was under extreme, um, uh, you know, people were giving him the side eye to an extreme. The city had just started its consent decree um, and being watched by the federal government. They had a lot to be, um, concerned about, but then they were able to talk about Jesse Spallett and how bad he was. And so, um, you know, it does seem to be an agenda to me of distraction and trying to put the attention on Jesse Smollett so that the attention would not remain on them and the things that they were. Okay. After Dan Webb, who spoke at length. Actually, I did want to just say something about Dan Webb. For one, you know, he said that the jury deliberated for two to three hours, mm-hmm. but they actually deliberated for nine hours. And about halfway through is when um, Judge Lynn got involved and sent back um, evidence that they had not asked for, which many considered to be jury tampering. He also said that Jesse lied on the stand for several hours. Um, and that the jury found that he was lying. So it's interesting how they, both he and Judge Lynn were able to say, well, the jury said, and so then they were able to sort of dig in even more and say the jury thought this, the jury thought this, the jury thought this. But we have to remember that Judge Lynn was very um, controlling about what evidence he allowed the jury to know in the first place. They did not have all the evidence that they needed to make a clear decision on this case. Okay, let's let's get a little deeper into both of those, Shelley. Both the judge and Dan Webb, prosecutor, uh, said at different times that the jury found that he was lying on the witness stand. Uh, but that can't possibly be true. Jesse wasn't charged with uh, perjury. He was not. 
No, they kept bringing that up, but they certainly did not charge him with perjury. So um, the jury and, never never deliberated about perjury. And it's not, you know, every that would cause a situation where everybody that was found guilty who testified in their own defense could then be charged with perjury. And that's a bit much, especially since we have so many um, wrongful convictions in this country, so many people exonerated. You know, to just say that because a jury finds you guilty, you're definitely 100 percent guilty is unfortunately in this country, certainly not the reality. You know, there's many people who have been exonerated after being found guilty in court. Right. It's also true that if you added a perjury charge to every defendant who spoke for himself on the witness stand and was then convicted, that they would all be guilty of perjury de facto. And that would mean we're short about uh, 10,000 prisons in this country. Uh, hey, after uh, the judge opened the trial and after Dan Webb spoke at length and so very harshly in recommending prison time, repeated the phrase several times, uh, prison time for uh, Jussie Smollett would be warranted, uh, then the uh, defense got a chance to present uh, witnesses to speak to Jussie's character, his state of mind, uh, whatever they wanted to say. And most of them, and there were numerous famous and notable people that stepped forward to speak for Jussie. It was impressive. Uh, For me, the most impressive was Jussie's own uh, grandmother, 92-year-old Molly Smollett, who took the stand, uh, appeared at the sentencing and took the stand and spoke only briefly, but I think eloquently. Let's hear from Molly Smollett. My name is Molly Smollett. I am 92 years old. I have lived in New Mexico for over 25 years, but I am originally from New York where I was a film editor. I am the proud grandmother of Jesse and his siblings. I felt compelled to come and tell you that the Jesse I know and love does not match up with the media's betrayal of him. And I'm talking to you guys. You haven't done a good job on investigative reporting. I've worked on documentaries. I know what it is. I've gone through the McCarthy period. I marched with Martin Luther King and the March on Washington. And I'm here now. And so you got to do better. I challenge you to do more investigative reporting. You had to see it to appreciate it. But at that point, she turned and she was speaking right to the media in the courtroom. And I can't think of a prior example of someone in a courtroom at a trial with a whole lot of coverage and many, many reporters packed into the courtroom that turned her fire, 92-year-old lady turned her fire on the media. And Shelley, I've got to say, I don't know if you've ever met a Molly Smollett. It sounded like she was speaking for you. She was, she was telling the uh, reporters... Hey, you need a lot more Shelly Stanleys over there, you guys. Did you? I haven't. I definitely haven't met her. Um, yeah, you know, I I definitely agree with her that we do need a lot more investigative journalists, and in this case, for sure, the media should have investigated the Chicago Police Department from the beginning and their statements. They should not have just accepted everything that CPD, a notorious department for lying to the public and hiding evidence from the public that they were telling the truth about everything in this case. The media 
job was to investigate the Chicago Police Department. Hey, Shelley and Kimberly, you're both welcome to comment on this. What happened to the media in the Jussie Smollett case? Why did they flip so totally and uh, so quickly once, I think it was at the point of the big police press conference when they blew the case, at least they claimed, they blew the case wide open when they got to the Ossendera brothers and got their confessions and now everything turned against Jussie. The media tends, correct me if I'm wrong, they tend to lean kind of left, if not hard left, in most things, and especially cases like these, where a prominent black young black man and a very prominent entertainer is uh, suddenly his report of a hate crime is turned on him that he's the criminal. The media would, in my mind, they would be very suspicious of that, especially in Chicago in the wake of all that happened with the Laquan case and everything. The media seemed to line up with the prosecution instantly. How did that happen? I would say fear. Um, Chicago, uh, as Shelley stated, is a city that's very well known for for foolishness, for lying, for, you know, just a bunch of illegal, um, non-disciplined. It's just, it's always been a bad place. It's where it all started, you know? You know, it's where it all started. So I think that a lot of fear took place. You know, who's gonna who's gonna police the police? Now that this has even happened, is it gonna go any further? Is anybody gonna do anything? Who can get inside the police station and clean this up? Who's going to do that? Nobody. Shelley? Yeah, I definitely agree. And, you know, the other thing to note here, even though, you know, as you're saying, Tom, you feel that the media usually tends to go left. I think we have to remember that Chicago is known to be a bastion of the Democratic Party. They're also Mm. known to be one of the most racist and violent um, cities towards the black community for generations. So I think that really flies in the face of what people say in the Democratic Party, what the Democratic Party stands for. I also think that, you know, we can look at the case of the um, Haman Square Torture Center. Mm -hmm. Um, That case was actually going on for for several decades where um, Black men in Chicago were being tortured um, into falsely confessing against themselves and going to jail sometimes for life. And they would go into court and tell the courts over and over, we were tortured, I was tortured in prison, here are my scars, here are my bruises, and nobody did anything about it for decades. A journalist from The Guardian, which is a a paper from um, the UK in, in Great Britain, were the ones who actually broke the story. No American newspaper, no Chicago newspaper would touch that story. And I think what Kimberly's saying is is very accurate there about the fear that the media has to expose people in powerful positions, to expose things that people don't want exposed, to mess with someone's um, trajectory and agenda. Um, there's a fear in the media a lot of times to do that. And so it was actually a British newspaper that had to go to Chicago to break a story that had been going on for decades, and which for which there was tons of evidence already in the court system 
many, many people saying the same thing, and yet nobody would talk about it. Shelley, isn't it true that the consent decree, the federal consent decree that puts uh, severe restrictions on Chicago police for indeterminate time into the future is mostly based on the case you were just discussing? Well, that was that was the Laquan McDonald case. And yes, the Hammond Square case. So there there are actually many, many cases. There's also the case of Rakia Boyd, a woman who was shot by a CPD officer off duty because he thought she was being too loud in a park. Mm-hmm. Um, there's many, many cases and a pattern of racist, unconstitutional behavior that the federal government found to to put CPD um, under that federal consent decree. Okay. Hey, this case just takes us in so many different, much broader directions. It all goes back to the greater agenda that seems to be in play here. And we still haven't scratched the surface of what that agenda is all about. But I think thanks to you, we're getting there. Let's hear just the end of Molly Smollett's testimony at the sentencing. Jesse himself, as you've heard from the testimonials, is a very gentle, kind, and generous young man, and his empathy is infinite, which translates in giving of himself. Jesse has always been active in the pressing issues facing our communities, such as HIV, AIDS, voting rights, and other urgent social problems in America. One Christmas, he went to Flint, Michigan to entertain children who were living with lead poisoning from their drinking water. What the media may not know is that Jesse is what I call a justice warrior. He has been active against injustice all his life, as his mother has, who is an incredible rock for her children. And as my son, their father, who sadly passed away from cancer seven years ago, only in his 50s. And I know in my heart that my son, Jesse's father, would have wanted me to come here to tell you who the real Jesse is. I also have fought against injustice forever, and I feel it's in our DNA. I attribute this to being Jewish and the persecution of my ancestors. The Hebrew words to kunulam means to repair the world, and that's what I do, and that's what Jesse does. I will end by saying that Jesse is loved and respected by all who know him. And I ask you, the judge, not to send him to prison. If you do, send me along with him, okay? And I thank you for letting me talk. Thank you so much. Thank you all. It's nice to be in Chicago. Okay, I I don't know about you. I love the way she finished up by saying, if you're going to send him to prison, send me along with him. Okay, we're going to move on from Molly Smollett and get to uh, Judge Lynn, Judge James Lynn, and his 40-minute 40-minute wrap-up of the sentencing hearing with his declaration of the final sentence for Jussie. Let's hear what we have from Judge Lynn. I'm mindful that there's acute public interest in this case. We have television cameras. They, they want to be here, and they are here. 
people are watching. People seem to care passionately for varieties of reasons about this case, and, and the reasons are, uh, are, are many. And let me be clear that the sentence that I put down today and, and render down to Mr. Smollett is not in any way, shape, or form to assuage any public sentiment uh, in, in any, any form at all. I'm listening to things that were brought to me in court today, things, uh, people that have participated in the aggravation and mitigation uh, portions of the presentation today, but this is not for the public. The sentence that's going to be rendered today is going to be strictly for Mr. Smollett. It's going to be fashioned for him. And when a judge sentences somebody, and I've been doing this for quite a while now, you have to look at both the crime that was committed and the person that committed it. How did the person get here? Who is this person? What is the crime? You put them together, you look at the sentencing range, and you try to find something that is just and fits and makes sense and that is right. Okay, let's stop there for a second. You know, I noted that the judge uh, started off by saying he was mindful. He was aware that there was great interest in the case. Uh, the cameras wanted to be here, and they are. And everybody at this has such uh, enormous interest all over the country, this case. You know, when a judge says that opening a statement, and he finished that opening by saying, this was not for the public. This is only for Jesse. Well, you know, it's the opposite. The judge is talking to the big audience. This is, and this has happened more than once in modern times. In a big case like this, with the media on top of everything, the judge is completely aware that he's in a performance now. This is entertainment. Uh, this is going national, international, on TV, social media, everywhere. And he's one of the stars of the show. And they gear up for that, not as a judge, but as an actor, as a performer. And this judge definitely went down that path, a little too far down the path, I think. Um, and there was one other point I wanted to get at there, and that was we wanted to find out who this person is and how they got here. Well, in the mitigating uh, phase of the sentencing, they heard from all kinds of important people uh, telling them, uh, so many great things about Jussie Smollett. So that's who this person is. And the judge wanted to turn that around and say, no, it's not. He's the person that did the hoax. And that's all he is. Nothing else. Tom, I just got to say, his whole his whole sentencing was very passive aggressive. You, you bring him up and you, 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 you announce all of his accolades and then you begin to tell him what a bad side he has and what a time generally in dealing with people. I've noticed that when, when people are lying or uh, really don't know where to, when to stop or, or, or shut up, um, excuse the expression, um, they talk too much. And that's what he did a lot of. He did a lot of talking. He was very repetitive. And it's like he, he was and, and, and all of his details as if he was there. And, and most of them are, are, are untrue, but he talked and talked as if he thought somebody would be out in the audience of taking notes to write a book. Like he wanted to tell this story that never even happened. 
was ridiculous and it was a waste of time. And to constantly talk about the time it took for, for the police department to handle this case, you took 45 minutes to tell a story that didn't happen. And you're a judge. Can you get to the point? What was all the extra nonsense for? It was a train wreck. Shelly? I agree with Kimberly's assessment. I mean, I I found it to be just stunning. I mean, especially knowing all the evidence he didn't allow in court and just the, the videos that I've seen and that many others have seen now. Um, it was I found it somewhat horrifying to watch, um, and I felt it was a huge miscarriage of justice on the part of the judge. And he did say many things that were inaccurate during his his sentencing because he basically tried to narrate, as Kimberly was saying, what he thought happened, but he actually ended up then adding in other things that nobody has ever said before at different points, and it was just kind of stunning to see him do. He was like writing his own screenplay uh, for the Jussie Smollett story. Um, Right. And he did have, you know, he had several pieces of paper he was reading from, so he had pre-written it. And and much of it did, you know, the language was identical to the prosecutor's um, language. Like he said, that CPD really shined in this case. Um, You know, several points that he made were identical to the prosecution's case and and much of the language was identical. You know, I'm glad you brought that up because I believe that the special prosecutor, Dan Webb, had great influence over the trial. He is one of the most renowned and respected and at the center of the legal system for 40, 50 years. And easily one of the most influential attorneys in Chicago for certain. Uh, My theory is that the sentence, although the judge had the right, the exclusive right to determine the sentence, no one else had any right. There was uh, no direct line of appeal or correction. It was entirely up to the judge. But I believe in this case it was not. I believe that the special prosecutor, Dan Webb, had great influence over this judge. And the judge would have been very reticent to take one step away from the recommendations of Dan Webb. And this is only speculation. I have no evidence. I believe it was weeks ago when Dan Webb and the uh, judge, James Lynn, got together privately and agreed on the sentence and that all the testimony, mitigating testimony from friends or supporters of family members of Jesse and everything else in the sentencing hearing was all for entertainment purposes only and had Mm -hmm. nothing to do with anything. It was already predetermined. Tom, you could tell by the prosecutors that they, they were sitting back and they had the look on their face as if, I don't know why you all are up here wasting your time reading all these letters, saying all these nice things about this kid. It's right. over. Nobody's listening. Uh, Nobody's listening. Shelly? I agree. I mean, I think that, um, you know, I there's a, a huge case in Chicago called Operation Greylord, which was in the 80s, but it spoke a lot about um, judicial corruption in Cook County, and many people have said that hasn't changed. 
until yeah. now. Of course, that, that's funny because at that time, Dan Webb was involved in, in somewhat in prosecuting the judges. But, um, you know, many people at that time, uh, including um, Rob Warden, one of the investigative journalists, was saying that uh, Dan Webb's involvement was more for show. It was more for the accolades than to really get the Cook County justice system um, under control. That time involved a lot of bribery of judges, a lot of um, favors that judges would do to swing cases certain ways. Um, right. fixed, and so there was a lot of, a lot of corruption cases. at that time right. in Cook County. And uh, many people have said it hasn't changed. They uncovered uh, fixed verdicts in murder cases, didn't they? I believe so, yeah. I mean, it was it was all throughout the, the whole justice system. And there, um, were, a lot of, there were dozens of judges and bailiffs and others who were either convicted or at least uh, tossed off the bench because of Operation Greylord, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, one thing I learned recently about Judge Lynn is that he's actually not elected by the um, by the public. He's he's elected by fellow judges. And that was one thing that Rob Warden said at that time, that that system is not one that will allow for much oversight or, or justice when the chief judge and certain judges are not um, held to any public scrutiny. The, the public doesn't have a choice about whether they're a judge or not. It's, it's the other judges who elect them. And so that's Judge Lynn's career. He, he was not elected by anyone to be in that position other than his fellow judges. All right. And Shelly, you Little have... Boys club. You, I'm sorry, Kimberly, go ahead. <laughs> I said it was a little boy club. Uh, Shelly, you already uncovered through your investigations uh, some facts about Judge Lynn that most people uh, are completely unaware of, including uh, some at least misbehavior by Judge Lynn in certain cases, like the Jussie case, where he so strongly tended to act against the alleged victim in cases and uh, favor the other side. At, to such an extent that uh, they barred him from being a judge in cases like that for uh, several years, haven't they? He's actually still banned. So those are for, um, yeah, sexual assault victims cases, which he um, ruled on them so poorly, basically in favor of the, of the assaulter and not in favor of the victim, that he's actually been banned from from presiding over any cases since then. And there was a an investigation by the Better um, Government uh, journalist outlet out of Chicago that has written about Judge Lynn in, in that case. No, I'm just something I can't figure out how we got here. Yes. I, uh, uh, Shelley, I'm not I'm not aware of that myself. Do you know how Judge Lynn ended up getting appointed to this case? Well, what they said the day that he got appointed, which I just always found kind of funny, was that it was random, they said, and that they picked two people first, but they were both out sick that day, and then it came to him, and they put him on the case. Hmm. But we've talked a little bit before about his conflicts of interest with this case, and that, you know, I think there's strong evidence that he should have recused himself from being involved in this case at all. 
we we could get into some more detail there, especially I think people would be interested in hearing about the relations between Judge Lynn and his wife and the Trump family. And it's kind sure. of curious. It may be irrelevant to the case, but maybe not. You want to tell us a little bit about that, Shelley? Donald Trump was very outspoken in this case. And um, one of the things about Judge Lynn is that his uncle is a man named Larry Ellison, who's the founder of Oracle. Mm -hmm. And Larry Ellison was a major donor to Trump. Um, he had a fundraising event that required a $250,000 donation for attendees. Judge Lynn's wife is also has made multiple donations to Trump's election campaigns and organizations since 2016. And um, one thing that I found about his wife, Pamela Lynn, was that she works for Compass, which is a company that Joshua Kushner, um, Jared Kushner's brother, they both co-founded that com a company called Thrive Capital, and they have highly invested in the business that Pamela Lynn works for. You know, Pamela Lynn was very interesting because she actually sat through the entire trial when Judge Lynn was banning much of the public from the trial. His wife was there every day, even though she's a luxury real estate agent. She sat through the entire trial for some reason. Hmm. And I think there's many things that, that show that Judge Lynn could be very easily influenced by financial relationships, by familial relationships with the, the Trump family in this case, and that because the Trumps were so outspoken about this case before it even went to trial, saying that Jesse was definitely guilty before the trial even occurred, which is a violation of his rights, Judge Lynn should have recused himself. Uh, wow. It gets curiouser and curiouser as we move mm -hmm. along. To me, it was really like watching a, a mob mentality at play, which, you know, is never a good thing. No. Hey, it's, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, during the live broadcast, uh, I've never seen a judge behave that way at a sentencing or ever heard of it. And I've seen plenty of trials and many, many transcripts. I haven't seen a serial murder case where the judge was uh, that relentless in the viciousness of his attack on a, a convicted person. All he really has to do is sentence him and be done with it. Exactly. <laughs> it could have been a three-minute. You know, it could sentence. have. Could have been three minutes instead of six hours. Okay, let's go on a little bit. I don't think there is anything funny at all about hate... Uh, hoaxing and faking racial hate crimes, hoaxing or faking homophobic hate crimes. I think that is disgraceful. There is nothing funny about it. There's no humor in what you did whatsoever. All because you're selfish, arrogant, narcissistic. At least you have that side in you uh, that, that came out through this case and, and you kept doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. Uh, it's not funny. It's not funny at all. And I'm your sentencing judge. And I don't find it funny. So where are we at? We're at the end. You're convicted of a class four felony. It's presumptively probationable, but we have some real serious aggravating factors here. Your premeditation, which I've described. The pain you've caused to real victims of hate crimes, which I've described. The damage you've done to the city of Chicago, I've heard. 
it's been, it's been talked about. I'm mindful of the city's request for restitution, and I, I, if I'm going to fashion that, uh, consider that request, I have to fashion the sentence accordingly. And above all, the capper of all cappers, your performance on the witness stand. This could only be described as pure perjury. You got on the witness stand, you didn't have to, you did, you certainly have a right to, but you committed hour upon hour upon hour of pure perjury. And I find all those to be ample factors. If this court were to decide that the things you did that any kind of probationary sentence would deprecate the seriousness of the offense and you need to go to the penitentiary, there, the record is clear and it would support it. But I'm looking at everything in its totality. And I agree, it's told to me today, you can't judge everybody by one bad thing they've done in their life. I don't know if it's the only bad thing, but it's the only bad thing that I'm concerned about now. And that you do have quite a record of real community service and quite a record of attaching with people. There is a lot of mitigation in this case as well. And I'm mindful of the pleas of mercy, particularly from people that are in the arena of dealing with social justice issues that are fighting, seriously fighting, not playing around, not doing games like you are doing, but seriously fighting for matters involving hate crimes of all sorts. And they're asking you for mercy as well. So I'm trying to consider who you are as a person, how you got here, how somehow you strayed away from your family values, you let that dark, narcissistic, selfish, and arrogant side come out, and you persisted with it for years on this case. I'm fashioning the following sentence, and here's your sentence. I'm sentencing you to 30 months felony probation, and the probation is gonna to be to this court. You're gonna be allowed to travel wherever you want. You do not have to live in the state of Illinois. You can report by phone. I know that uh, if you're going to try to make a living and do some of the things you do, you may have to go to uh, other uh, the places, New York and Los Angeles. You can do those things. You will pay restitution to the city of Chicago in the amount of $120,106. You are fined $25,000, which is the maximum fine. And you will spend the first 150 days of your sentence in the Cook County Jail. And that will start today, right here, right now. Okay, I guess we should stop there. Shelley, I'd like to hear from you first. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I don't really have that much to say. I think the sentence is, is quite extreme. And, um, you know, he every pot he could pull out of, he assigned punishment from um, almost to the maximum. Mm -hmm. And um, I don't know. I don't really know what to say. I, I'm still somewhat uh, speechless about it. Right. Uh, Kimberly, you have a thought on the sentencing? The final sentence. I, I do. You know, just that it, it, it went too far. And then in the very end, Tom, to tell him it starts right here, right now. You're keeping him like he's a, like, like he's going to go and do something else. Like he's going to go and hurt somebody. Yeah. So, so he doesn't have time to go and get his affairs in order or is he, you're just keeping him right here, right now, as if he's a, a murderer. Yes, I think the judge uh, really enjoyed that. That, yes, hey, and I know your uh, attorneys are going to jump out of their seats right now and say, hey, wait a second, let's have him released on his own recognizance, at least until uh, we've got appeals going in. And, exactly. Uh, and 
No, he loves saying, no, 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 right now. You're going right now. And we have said from the beginning, the Jussie podcast is going to be a search for the truth. We just want to know the truth about the Jussie Smollett case. We don't care what it is. We just want to know the truth. And we're not going to be biased for any side. And we're going to keep uh, searching for the truth. And I think we found some. We haven't found it all yet. Tom, let me say this mostly to Shelly. Um, I can't thank you enough for the work that you're doing, for the time that you're putting in to help us find the truth, to help, you know, to, to help us figure it all out. Um, it's a shame. It really is. It's a shame that it's a power struggle. This is what we've mm-hmm. been doing, and this is what we'll continue to do. And it's, it's tough to watch. It's tough to be a part of. It's tough to hear. It gets old, but it never stops. So, Shelly, I just want to say thank you for everything that you're doing. And you too, Tom, for, for even bringing it to the forefront and, and making it a conversation that needs to be had. So thank you both. You yeah, too. thank Bye, you Shelley. too, Kimberly. I, I appreciate it. I want to thank you both. We'll be back very soon with Episode 7 on the Revolver Podcast Network. all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. Parents, when you visit California, childhood rules. If you don't remember how awesome childhood is, just ask yourself. What would kids do? Dance to a giant organ played by ocean waves? Yep. Camp in floating tree houses hundreds of feet off the ground? Check. Jump in a big tub of mud on purpose? Call it rejuvenation. We don't care. Just pack your fun pants and let childhood rule your family vacation. If you need help, ask your kids. Start planning at visitcalifornia.com.